0: The content of this program is sponsored by Make It Work, Nevada. The content of this program does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz & More or the University of Nevada, Las Vegas.
1: My name is Amia, and my name is Amia Rosebelly. My nickname is Mimi. Can you hear yourself? Yes. How old are you? I'm four. You're four. How many teeth do you have missing? I have two missing. You have two missing, two bottom teeth missing, don't you? Yes. Do you like hearing yourself? Yes. It's pretty fun, isn't it? Yes. Okay. I'm going to talk to your mom about when you were born and about when your sister was born. What's your sister's name? My sister's name is um, Aleya, and she's about Hazel. Her middle name is Hazel. And my daddy has green eyes, and mommy's mom is we become too born to her. Mm-hmm. And grandma Sissy's mom gave birth to her, and my ancestors, my ancestors gave birth to my All own mom. Cancer.
2: That's four-year-old Mimi being interviewed by our producer, Carrie Kaufman. Mimi's mother gave birth to her in a hospital, then decided to have her second daughter at home which she says was a much better experience.
3: Black women and Black pregnant people's bodies have historically and continue to be under surveillance
2: and monitored and controlled. I wrote a report called Women's Watch that predicted that there would be overlap between the white supremacist movement and the anti-abortion movement.
4: Anti-abortionists were the eugenicists. They wanted control of birth, but they also wanted WASP women to not have
1: abortions. It stopped short of where Mengele and the other Nazi architects took it. But I don't see it as categorically different. I think it's just a different level of extreme.
5: You assume that when you go for help through an agency or to the doctor, that that's what you're gonna get. You don't assume that shortly thereafter, you're going to be incarcerated.
2: This is American Dreams, Reproductive Justice, and I'm your host, Erica Washington. In this episode, we're going to look at midwifery, why some people might want a midwife, the history of midwifery in this country, and roadblocks to safe-at-home births.
0: My name is Ashley Herranz Alvarez, and I'm 23 years old. I'm a mother of two. We
2: interviewed Ashley in her parents' apartment. Her parents have birds. Since we're talking about home birth, it seemed apt to keep the given ambiance in the recording. First, Ashley described how she was treated as an 18-year-old on Medicaid when she gave birth to her first daughter in the hospital.
0: As soon as I got there, actually on the way there, um, I was soaking, like it just, my water wasn't like stopping and they were just like, are you, are you sure your water broke? Like, how do you know that your water broke? And while my shirt, you could see that I was wet. I was like, "Um, look at my shirt, like my, my water broke, I'm soaked. I need to go to a room and like, they were hesitating to get me to a room. Meanwhile, I saw them like take two people in before me while we were all like, we went there at the same time. It was really frustrating. Then when I finally get there, they were taking a long time to check me to see how far I was dilated. It was just a lot of like hesitance. They were just very dismissive about certain things that I wanted. I wanted to um, have my oil diffusers. I wanted to play certain music. They kind of like would laugh it off. Nurses would come in and like laugh about it. It really intimidated me.
3: It's fairly typical. What we would consider a typical birth story is that level of disconnect, is that level of dismissiveness, not listening to parents, uh, not slowing down when, when a mom says, you know, I need, a, I need a second, I need a minute. Can I just, you know, gain my bearings? There's a lot of intimidation. There's a lot of condescension. And that's pretty typical, unfortunately. That's Jolena Simpson. You heard her in episode two
2: she was Ashley's midwife for her second pregnancy. For Ashley's first birth, the nurses weren't the only ones who were condescending.
0: Then we had like an on-call doctor that came in. He just was very unprofessional. Um, He did look like he just woke up. Um, He came in with like flip-floppy sandals, just dragging his feet, wearing like pajama shorts. It was just not good. He had a very tired, didn't want to be there energy, very sarcastic as soon as he got there, my mom and his mom did not like him. It was that that was when it got more difficult. He was saying a lot of rude stuff while I was pushing. Like, at one point, he told me that he had to cut me for her to come out fully. And I got really scared because he had these really big clamps, like right by down there. And I felt like I was gonna feel it because I already was feeling everything. Like, the epidural had, they gave me the epidural twice and it was already running out again. So I was like, wow, I'm gonna feel that. And um, I had to take a break. I was, like I started crying. I got like emotional. I was, like wait, can can we wait? Like I don't. He's like, well, we're gonna be here all night if you don't if you don't decide. It was just like this nasty energy that he had. Also, I have a, a video of how he took my baby out, but it was just not good how he held her. He held her very aggressive. And um, when he cut, he actually cut the umbilical cord from her. And he let the clamps still, he let the clamps, like the clamps were still connected to my cord and he just let them go while still connected to me. And you can hear me in the video say, ow, I'm shaking. Cause it hurt, I didn't know what it was, but like I just, it just did not feel good. It was him that did that, you know, just very savage. I cannot tell
3: you how many times I've come up against a doctor who's doing something illegal. Um, and really unethical. Taking unauthorized pictures of a person's genitalia on their personal phone. Pulling so hard on an umbilical cord, you invert the uterus, and then blame it on the parent for not listening to you. Stuff
2: like that. For her second birth, Ashley turned to midwifery, which both she and her partner had done some research on. A friend had suggested they call Jolena.
0: We immediately uh, wanted to get in contact with her, especially when, when we were told that she was a melanated queen. I wanted that. I wanted somebody that would be able to understand, someone that's way more nurturing, especially naturally.
2: When a person is in labor, they're vulnerable, they're in pain, and so they want to feel comfortable. And being in a hospital
3: room, sometimes
2: that isn't, that isn't a safe space. That's Mary Leon. We heard her in episode one. She's a certified nurse midwife who works in a medically integrated freestanding birth center near Chicago. Yeah, none of us around here understood what I just said either. Because the practice of midwifery, for as much as it's meant to be a simpler back to our ancestors way to birth, is incredibly complicated to navigate. Most insurance companies won't pay for it. If they do, they require your midwife to have some letters after her name to give them some assurance that she's professional. Insurance companies love assurance and letters and titles indicate safety to them. But as Jolena points out. Being licensed does not make you safe. It only makes you legal. Which brings us to our first question about midwifery in the US. What is it and who practices? Is that two questions? It may be two questions. Here's Mary talking about her path. Through the nursing entry, so you become a registered nurse, you have a nursing degree, and then you get advanced degree in midwifery. Certified nurse midwives, or CNMs, mostly work in hospitals or birth clinics, but sometimes attend home births. Since they are nurses, they can prescribe medicine in most states, and they can take care of the whole person, from strep throat to unexplained rashes, Then there's CPM, or Certified Professional Midwife. For that explanation, let's bring in a new voice to the mix.
5: My name is Libby Silva. I'm a CPM and I work at the Birth Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Libby says CPMs mostly do. Out of hospital birth is where you're specializing. Um, You can go to to an accredited school and you do didactic training as well as the clinical training. And then you take a certifying exam and you can be licensed by the state that you work in. So the, the majority of midwives in Utah are certified professional midwives and more and more we're seeing CPMs who do go through an accredited program. Libby
2: says there are a lot of CPMs in Utah
5: where they have 24
2: freestanding birth centers. That is birth centers that don't operate within hospitals. Nevada has one and none that operate within hospitals. Also in Nevada, most of our midwives, says Jelena, didn't go to school. They got their training in. The
3: portfolio evaluation process, the PEP process, The portfolio evaluation process is an apprenticeship model. You apprentice with midwives, you have your skills signed off on. You have to have so many births, so many prenatals, and all of these things are signed off on. You still have to take lots of continuing education classes. You still have to have your neonatal resuscitation. I mean, there's still lots of things that are required through the portfolio evaluation process. Okay,
2: so now we have three ways of becoming a midwife. Certified nurse midwife certified professional midwife that goes to a midwife school, and certified professional midwife that goes through years of training with preceptors, other midwives who teach them. The last two are under the same umbrella. The important thing to know here is that there are two ways to become a CPM. There's also simply a nurse midwife. That's the fourth way.
5: The certified midwife, the CM, that's a a kind of midwife that I really wish was the gold standard across the states because... That is basically a master's in midwifery, but you don't have to go to nursing school. So if you know you want to be a midwife, you don't really need to waste your time going to nursing school, doing your rotations and all the areas that you might not really care about, quite frankly. <laughs> CMs are mostly certified and licensed on the East Coast. I think there might be like eight states that have programs and, and certification and licensure for them. How many midwives
2: are we talking about? Well, that's not completely clear. The American College of Nurse Midwives says there are about 12,000 nurses, but the Bureau of Labor Statistics says there are less than 8,000. The National Association of Certified Professional Midwives says there are about 4,000 CPMs. But we can't be certain because many midwives aren't accredited or licensed at all. And yes, accreditation and licensure are two different things. It's akin to the difference between going to law school and passing the bar. We told you it was complicated.
3: So, traditional midwife is someone who has worked with, learned under and been mentored by another traditional midwife. Someone who does not have a typical schooling pathway, meaning I didn't go to nursing school to become a nurse midwife. My preceptors, my teachers, my mentors were all people who had been practicing the art of midwifery for decades. And those traditions and arts were passed along to me through my apprenticeship and through the time when I was starting to take my own clients and they mothered me through my process as well in the way that mothers do, right? Sometimes it, it's a slap on the hand, sometimes it's a look, and sometimes it's a push. There was a lot of different
4: women of different racial and ethnic groups practicing midwifery since the United States was colonized. And so, you know, a lot of them were European women that brought those traditions from Northern Europe, Western Europe, but of course, enslaved women had their own
2: traditions. That's Alicia Suarez. You heard her in episode two. She's a professor at DePaul University in Indiana.
3: This is a beginning of time tradition, right? So this is not something that we just dreamed up in the last 50 years. All of
4: these women were practicing what was called social childbirth, social birth. Obviously, it was done at home. Female family members, friends, neighbors, that kind of thing attended. Typically, there was one woman who had been doing this a while and had experience with a lot of births. So they
3: weren't necessarily called midwives at that time, but they were practicing midwifery. So if you think about how insular indigenous and displaced African communities were with themselves, they had to figure this out on their own. They had to be able to survive with what they were given. And so relying on community was necessary. It was your life. It is the messages that that got through. It is the food that was saved for you. It is the tradition that is passed down to you? Obviously, enslaved people didn't have access
4: to doctors, even though doctors at that time, you know, you might end up dead, you might not. But so they were the ones that attended births, and sometimes they would even attend the birth of the plantation owners' wives. And that made them very nervous because if something went wrong, then they would be blamed, but they didn't often have much of a choice.
3: Grand midwives is kind of the rebranding of the Black midwives from the South. So they were branded granny midwives, but that kind of got a little old, a little stodgy.
4: colloquial term which some have eschewed is granny midwife. There's some midwifery scholars who prefer the word grand midwife, which is what I have embraced.
3: After Reconstruction and during Jim Crow is when most of the elder midwives in the South, the black midwives, who were taking care of everyone—not just black women—they were taking care of indigenous women, they were taking care of white women, they were taking care of who would be considered Mexican women, right? All of these indigenous populations, these elder midwives were taking care of everybody because they had the skill, they had the hands, and they had the trust of their communities, right? So a grand midwife would take a young. Person under their wing for years and teach them the art of midwifery, but not only that, but the art of healing, the use of herbs, the use of food, the use of community in order to get that young person up to snuff, up to where they needed to be in order to step into that role as that grand midwife aged and was less able to do those big, long trips or less able to stay those long days at people's houses. When
4: everyone was pushed out in the second half of the 1800s, in some ways, grand midwives were ignored and sort of left to practice. Because first for enslaved women and then even after supposed emancipation, we know that this population was still very much marginalized and segregated. and they still kept attending births. They also attended rural white women's births. And so it was it was tacitly accepted, I would say, especially in the Deep South,
2: just because no one else wanted to do it. No one else really cared. I guess this is a case of be careful what you wish for, because when the medical establishment did start to see grand midwives, well, they do what arrogant establishments do. They drove them out. White
4: upper middle class men came back from Europe with these specialties in gynecology but especially obstetrics they had to have a clientele and what's a better clientele than women who give birth because a lot of people do that and so that's what really became this push to change the idea of birth to a medical event versus a natural phenomena there became more faith in medicine especially with the professionalization of medicine you know now there was a code of ethics there was licensure More standardized schooling developed over the second half of the 19th century, and they were quite
3: effective in pushing midwives out. There were doctors who didn't want to work with, or even reconstruction. Heck, let's go back even further. Who would not treat? would not treat black people, period, unless it was violent and all all of the things that we've come to understand uh, about medical apartheid, right? So when we go back to community and say, you know what, they're still not going to take care of us, so we still have to keep doing this ourselves. But then there's this next wave where black colleges were opening. Um, and nurses were being trained in black colleges, doctors were being trained in black colleges, colleges. midwives were being trained, and then the medical establishment said, wait a minute, you can only work on black people. You know, we'll train you, but you gotta go back to the south to work on black people. Um, you You can't treat white patients. A lot of the midwives and young nurses who traveled to the north to get education as midwives were told that they couldn't practice there or they could only practice in certain wards where black people were um, being hospitalized, right? So all of that, this huge brain trust that was being grown in the south through black colleges and then again in the north through white midwifery colleges came back to the south. They
4: tried to start licensing midwives a little bit uh, in the early, I Believe like 1940s, it might have been, but the sort of leaders of it down the chain were white nurses.
3: And then there was the oh well, these granny midwives are still unsafe, or grand midwives, so we need to teach them how to do their work. And they relied on the educated black population to try to instill that. And the educated black population was like, bet yeah, we can, we can help this out, we can do this. But what happened was they turned the tables on them. And they said, okay, well we're going to get all these people licenses, but then Decade after decade after decade, they just kept refusing licenses and refusing licenses, jailing people. They
4: did not respect grand black midwives. Their rhetoric and their discourse followed what the AMA had long said, that midwives were dirty and ignorant. Going back to the ethnic immigrant women, Catholic women, etc., that they brought things from the old world and didn't know what they were doing and they were unsafe. Nonetheless, many grand midwives kept practicing until the 1960s, even 1970s in the very deep South and very rural poor areas.
3: And so all of these older women who had been pillars and trusted in their communities forever started being like, this is too much, right? we can't do this anymore because of the threat on their lives, livelihood and their children. Then
4: it became seen as a, a sign of being more respectable. If you could go to the hospital you weren't a country woman. You weren't a rural poor woman. And so it was a way to kind of try to gain clout, is is to be able to have a hospital birth. I mean, that happened to white women in the 1800s. But by the 1950s or so, this was happening to more Black women. Because it was, if you could go to the hospital, that was a sign that you had some sort of resources to do so. So again, we're talking pre-Medicaid. It indicated someone had some kind of stable job, something like that. So it was, it was a sign of clout. Like, oh, she went to the hospital and had her baby. I wouldn't do that. I don't want to have it at home with a midwife. Again, I'm generalizing, but that is a strong pattern.
2: By the 1950s, hospitals were much safer than they were just 30 years before. Not only did the new medical specialists push midwives out in the late 1800s and early 1900s, but when people did go to the hospital, they had a better chance of dying. As I noted in an earlier episode, maternal mortality has gone up from seven people per 100,000 in 1988 to 17 people per 100,000 today. But when hospital medicine was a new thing 100 years ago, more than 600 people per 100,000 died in childbirth, many in hospitals. Puerperal
4: fever, P-U-E-R-P-E-R-A-L, basically what it was is that germ theory hadn't been completely discovered yet in the early 20th century. So physicians were going from the morgue, from surgery to labor and delivery and not washing their hands. So many women were basically getting septic. So that's just an aside, but I also find fascinating because everyone now is like, well, hospital birth is so much safer. And it's hard to compare to the early 20th century, but the rates of infant maternal mortality went up. Mm. When hospital births really got going, you know, when the majority of births were in the hospital by the early 20th century, it was worse for women and babies. And people don't know that history.
2: We have to point out here that we're talking about the very time that eugenics was popular. That affected midwife communities, too. Jolina talks about it.
3: The specific way that midwifery education explicitly excluded black people until like the 60s or the 70s, like the founder of um, Frontier Midwifery is just like, we're, we're not taking any black people. We just don't want them. And even up until the 90s, I know midwives who went to train through Frontier and other mostly white institutions in the Midwest who came out hurt and damaged from their experience in these white communities, right? And these white midwifery communities.
2: Frontier Nursing University has actually acknowledged that their founder, Mary Breckenridge, did hold racist beliefs. She believed in white superiority and wrote about eugenics and the value of segregation. They also note that she refused to sit at the table with a black person and refused to hire any black midwives.
0: We were planning a water birth. And I had my room cleaned out just to put the uh, the pool in there, the birthing pool. Ashley's second birthing experience was so much better than her first. I was actually able to do everything that I wanted to do. I said that before I had my second baby in my pregnancy, I said that I wanted to watch comedy in the beginning of my, like the active labor. I wanted to watch comedy. I was able to do that. Where did you watch? Dave Chappelle. (laughs) Just that was like the only thing that was really taking my mind. Like I was actually cracking up in the middle of like, you know, all this pain. It was so painful. Sometimes it is beautiful and
3: sacred. um, And sometimes it is, uh, it's not. Sometimes it can be scary, right? But it can be scary in the hospital too. Not gonna, not gonna lie. It's all about your team, who's communicating with you and what you have set up
0: to support you up until that moment. We got the pool ready. As soon as I got in the water, it was it was really calm. Like it helped me, it helped with the pain. But once they started saying you have to push, that's when it got very hard for me. Um, I'm very, I'm five, six, five, seven. So me being in that pool was like compressing me. And I wasn't feeling like that pressure that I was supposed to, you know, like when you feel like something wants to come out or I just was not feeling that. As soon as I got up, I started walking towards the master bedroom that had the bathroom. I started feeling the pressure. Like right when I got into the room, I started feeling pressure and I was like, oh, like, this is what I want to feel. Like it felt good. Like I started feeling like I was getting close. And in like the corner of the bathroom, the girl's dad was able to come behind me. And he was like, basically, I don't know how to explain it, but he was like, he had his arms under me, but he was behind me. He was basically like pulling me up while I was like squatting pulling down. It was very empowering that time of me pushing and especially when I started feeling the pain, I started feeling the ring of fire. The midwives were so empowering. They were like you are a goddess, you were designed to do this, you can do this. Um you're so strong and it was just so it was just like yeah, damn right. You're right. Yeah, you know, it was so empowering. Um they even gave me honey at one point. Um I want to say right when I started feeling like the ring of fire And I don't know what that was for, but that really, it helped me. The
3: honey is for energy. It's basically liquid sugar. So at the very end, a lot of times you kind of lose your resolve. That ring of fire makes you back off a little bit. And so the honey is just to give you that little bit of pep, that little bit of energy that helps carry you on to that next part.
0: Right after that, I want to say I pushed her out. And it was amazing. I was actually able to pour out myself. I had my daughter Standing up, like squatting. I really felt like he pushed it with me for like the following week. I was feeling so sore under my underarms. I'm like, why am I? And I was like, It's him because he was, you know, holding me. But he was really pushing with me. And even when we were in the pool, he was very empowering. He's like, you can do this. Our ancestors are here with you. God is with you. Our angels are with you. It was just very empowering. Um, He would even massage my back when I was in the water.
3: The reality of can you turn to the person who's next to you or the person who is sitting in front of you and know that they've got you. And know that you can trust that what they're saying is for yours and your infant's benefit, not for a policy, not for a procedure, not for, you know, getting on to the next person. They've got you. That's what's important.
0: I feel like him and our moms also believing in in me and believing in that whole experience and empowering that made me believe in myself that I could do it.
2: The voices you heard on today's program are... Ashley Horan Alvarez, and her daughter Mimi. Las Vegas midwife, Jolena Simpson. DePaul University sociologist, Alicia Suarez. Chicago midwife, Mary Leung. Utah midwife, Libby Silva. Thank you for listening to American Dreams, Reproductive Justice. Created, hosted, and executive produced by Erica Washington. Also executive produced by Carrie Kaufman with Overthinking Media, LLC. Music by Will Black of Black Gypsy Music, with incidental music by The Flowbots. Artwork by Britt Holmes. This podcast is empowered by the donations to Make It Work Nevada. We also want to pay homage to the 12 women who were in the room in 1994. Dr. Tony Bond. Reverend Alma Crawford. The late Evelyn S. Field. Terry J. Bisola Meridnay, Cassandra McConnell, Cynthia Neubel, Loretta Ross, Elizabeth Terry, Representative Abel Mabel Thomas, Wynette P. Willis, and Kim Youngblood. Next week, we'll look at how legislation helps or harms the practice of midwifery. This is American Dreams, Reproductive Justice.